0: listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Mr. Ford, the Premier, again, calling in, and this time calling in this morning and talking to Peter Sherman on the air. And, of course, he's again commenting on the Zevin Kong case. That is the patient who was released, of course, from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. He was found not criminally responsible for a 2014 murder. And then, of course, he walked away. He got himself on an airplane, and he left the country. And there are all kinds of questions about this now. The premier, again, calling in and reiterating what he'd said before, which is we are going to get to the bottom
2: of this. We're looking into uh, a situation. You can't have someone uh, walking the streets uh, anywhere, in my opinion, in, in this country, not to mention uh, Toronto and Ontario, that uh, chopped up his roommate with a meat cleaver. And no one knew about it. Uh, he was out there for 11 days. Uh, I, I question, uh, first of all, uh, how he ended up uh, uh, getting uh, a pass like this. Uh, that's first of all. Second of all, how, how did he get on a plane? Um, and why wasn't the public informed?
1: That is Premier Doug Ford speaking on this radio station earlier this morning, talking about the Zevin Kong case. Now, I want to play something else for you. That really struck me from the interview with Peter Sherman. Here now is the Premier further talking about travel documents and how it is that Mr. Kong was able to leave the country. Listen to the speculation that he makes here.
2: It's really uh, mind-boggling to, to the average person, to myself, to anyone, that uh how did he end up getting this? Uh, was he was he helped by Cam H? Was he helped by someone else? That, that's the uh, questions that we're going to look into and and
1: find out. Now I understand that when you are saying, "Well, we're just going to look into it," you are allowed to speculate. But should the premier of the province be openly asking whether or not this person was actively aided by Cam H? That seems. That seems to be perhaps shading the issue and inflaming the issue. And, of course, the premier really inflamed the issue yesterday with the use of some of the words that he said. You know, Kong, who has schizophrenia, left H unaccompanied on July 3rd. Now, Ford called him a nutcase, quote-unquote, and said his government has to make changes so that, quote, crazy People aren't on the streets. And the use of those words prompted this response from NDP MPP Taras natashek
2: In 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 a in an emergency type of scenario, uh, that should be the, the paramount concern of the premier, not to stigmatize every person that has ever had a issue with mental illness by calling them crazy, crazy.
1: I ask you, is the use of those terms... Offensive. Are they offensive to you or is that plain spoken English? Obviously, there are many who say that those kind of terms are insulting to those with mental illness and that it is a wide brush to paint. Perhaps the Premier just should have ended with help the elderly. And you know who else perhaps could help with a little bit of just help the elderly? Here is Mark Saunders, the Toronto Police Chief, answering a pointed question that was raised even by the Premier on this radio station about the delay in communication with the public. Try, if you can, to understand this
3: based all of the actions that the the men and women at the Toronto Police Service uh, received and I can tell you uh, by the time they had figured out certain things there were immediate steps to uh, go out uh, more publicly but there was a gap where things kind of stayed upstream for a longer period of time before coming downstream and allowing uh, other entities to uh, do what needed to be done with this investigation and I hope to find out exactly what we need to do on, on the go forward.
1: Is Mark Saunders going fly fishing Upstream? Downstream? Go forward? What are you talking about? This is a huge story and a reason for concern. And this is the kind of communication we get from the top cop? I have said this before. I don't take any issue with Mark Saunders in his policing background and whether or not he's a good cop. That's not the issue at hand. The issue is when you are the police chief of a city of Toronto, your job is twofold. One, you are an administrator. Basically, you are looking over the top of the force to make sure that the correct people are in the correct places so that the resources can be deployed at the right time. And number two, and perhaps even more importantly, you are a communicator. You are to communicate the priorities of the force to the front line and to the personnel carrying out those edicts and orders. And you are also a key spokesperson for public safety to the public. You are the conduit of information from the police force, and it is vital that this city and this population continues to have trust in its police force and so a key responsibility of the police chief is to be able to communicate effectively and I ask you when you hear that upstream downstream on the go forward does that answer any question that you had about this case does that make you feel any better listen all politicians and Authorities often hide behind, listen, we're going to investigate. The premier does it too. He's he's doing it in, in, in so many of these things that he says. Look, we're going to look into it. Well, that's fine. But try and communicate that in English, please. When we come back, Brian Lilly from Sun Media is going to join me. He was part of that very awkward press conference that you just heard Mark Saunders speaking at. And I am going to go step by step through what happened there. And we're going to talk more about the chief of police and whether or not he has not only lost confidence from the rank and file, because that's clear. But has he now lost the confidence of this city as a whole? This is the Alan Carter Radio Program. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the program, and the question we are asking is, has Toronto's police chief now lost the confidence of the public at large in this city? And the reason I ask that question is his performance yesterday in a news conference where there were very pointed questions about the Zeben Kong case and whether or not a police chief whose role it is to communicate with the public whether or not he was able to carry out one of his key functions and roles. I want to play in exchange from the incredible news conference that happened yesterday. Here is Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun asking a question of the Solicitor General Sylvia Jones and the police chief Mark Saunders. And I want you to note the tone and the tenor of this question.
0: A uh, question for both um, Ms. Jones and Mr. Saunders uh, is it time that we stop treating people that are not criminally responsible and then go missing as escapees as we would with a prisoner rather than a missing persons case because uh, you know, this is someone who committed a heinous crime issue said Ms. Jones and uh, to, to you Chief Saunders uh, this is someone that your officers arrested and should have known who he was, and if they didn't, they've got access to this thing called Google. Um, Should we be treating people like Mr. Khan as escapees, rather than
1: missing persons? Now, let's skip ahead to a portion of an answer to that question from the Chief Mark Saunders. Now, here is a portion of the answer from Saunders to Lily's question.
3: I would urge you to get a better understanding of what it takes to get to the non-criminally responsible. Working in homicide I went through it a multitude of times and you know some people are upset and and my heart goes out to the family members of of the the loss of life because it's horrible and here we are reliving it again but I I think there is, is an opportunity for us to to figure out whether or not that is something that needs to be challenged.
1: Now the chief goes on in his round and roundabout style but when he finishes Mr. Lilly, response.
0: With no. all due respect, Chief, I asked you a yes, respectful sir. question. You've given me a disrespectful answer. You've said that I do not understand, not criminally responsible. I'm sorry, but more than 20 years of covering courts, I fully understand. It. And you are insulting not only me, but every single member of the public that is actually upset that someone was able to walk out on a day pass, someone that had butchered their roommate with a meat cleaver, was able to walk out on a day pass, get on a plane, and leave this country. And you're just saying, well there's learned people involved and you should get a better understanding?
1: I'm sorry. Joining me now on the line is Brian Dilly, a Post Media, columnist for the Toronto Sun. Hi Brian. Oh, good to be with you, Alan. What was it what, that seemed to set you off there? Just the sense that he, the, the chief just assumed that you didn't know what you were talking about?
0: Well, uh, I wasn't asking questions that were all that different from the two people ahead of me. we're all trying to get answers to the same thing. And I think when your police service went 11 days without informing the public that a meat cleaver murderer had been let loose on the street, um, that you owe the public answers. And and he didn't answer the two journalists ahead of me. And, And then I asked a question. He'd been respectful to them. And then I ask the question, and he starts lecturing me on, uh, on the need to understand, not criminally responsible. And and then later on, is you know, as you say, it was a roundabout answer. He started lecturing me about democracy and that we live in a democracy. I'm thinking, who is this guy? He, like, look, I. I'm, I'm new to Toronto after more than 20 years away. Uh, I haven't covered Chief Saunders before, but I've covered plenty of police chiefs in Montreal, in Toronto, uh, the RC, or Montreal and Ottawa, uh, with the RCMP, with municipal forces, with provincial forces. I've never been talked to by a police chief like that. I've always had good relationships with them. and And I was a little bit shocked, and maybe I let my emotions get the better of me, but I think I was expressing the frustration of an awful lot of people in this city who say, wait a minute, we deserve a better answer.
1: My point about a police chief, and I think you might agree with me, is that one of the key roles of any police chief on any level is to be able to communicate effectively. And I have interviewed Mark Saunders many times. I've covered Mark Saunders since he was in Homicide. And he speaks like a cop. And he also has this sort of tone, this tone to you that you, you have no idea what it is that you are talking about and how dare you ask him such a question. And I, I, I ask you this, is that a failure of Mark Saunders then to be able to do a key part of his job?
0: I would agree with that. You know, I heard your opening asking if he's uh, lost the ability to to lead, and I'm not sure I'd go there. But, uh, you know, I heard from so many members of the media, including some of your your colleagues, um, saying thank you for pushing back on Chief Saunders because he's always condescending. He's always arrogant. Well, I, I... that's something new to me what i can say is that that's not something i'm willing to put up with uh the police uh, and and the chief in particular should expect respect from members of the media when asking them questions but i think that we should expect respect in return. We are there representing the public because the police chief can't speak to the entire public. So we are representing our individual audiences that number in the hundreds of thousands. And we are there to give voice to the questions that the public has. Um, the public has an awful lot of questions. And so far, the, the most frustrating thing about this con case is nobody's responsible. Uh, this is the the amazing thing you know I, I wrote in my column today in the sun that there's three big mess ups and maybe there's more but we can see three big ones um we can see that kmh made a, a mistake that we can see that toronto police made a mistake and in not informing the public and whoever is in charge of making sure that you know people like that don't have passports and, and, and go through uh, customs uh, or get onto planes that was a mistake the police chief hasn't taken responsibility for the mess up of his department and he decided he wanted a lecture, anyone that was upset. Well, I think the whole city's upset, and you can't have a police chief talking down to the public like that.
1: I want to play for you uh, a a clip that I played in my last segment, and this is Doug Ford speaking on this uh, radio station earlier this morning, and this really jumped out at me as perhaps going a little too far, but I want your perspective on it. Here is Doug Ford talking about looking into what happened, and possibly was there help? CAMH,
2: it's really uh, mind-boggling to, to the average person, to myself, to anyone. That uh, how did he end up getting this? Uh, was he was he helped by Cam H? Was he helped by someone else? That, that's the uh, questions that we're going to look into and and find out.
1: Is that too far, Brian?
0: You know that I was listening to that interview with Peter Sherman this morning and. I didn't twig to that. Now I haven't heard, maybe the premiers heard something in a briefing with officials that we haven't heard. There was discussion yesterday by Chief Saunders about did he have help. Um, I would imagine that if it was somebody official on CAMH, it would not be help to have him escape. But, you know, he had to get the passport somehow. He had to get the money somehow. So somebody definitely helped him the question is who, how, when, where, why? These are all the basic journalistic questions. Um, you know, without knowing what the Premier knows, I can't say if he's gone too far. Maybe he knows something that we don't. Um, if it was somebody at CAMH, that, they've got a lot of Questions to answer. So far, they haven't been forthcoming either, and I'm quite frustrated and disappointed in how they've been handling it. Like I said earlier, a lot of organizations had failures here, and nobody's taking responsibility. I will say at both the federal and provincial level, uh, you know the minister of public safety ralph goodale getting upset about this good he's not personally responsible for what happened at the federal level doug ford's not personally responsible but him getting angry might shake the right people and uh, it looks like mayor tory is coming around to uh, to expressing the anger and frustration of the public
1: brian Lilly is with post media and is a columnist for the toronto sun thank you so much for joining me thank you alan I want to pivot really quickly to the press conference, the extraordinary press conference yesterday from the York Regional Police. There is so much to dig into in the major arrest and the bust-up of this mafia family. But members of the Ontario crime family with alleged ties to the Italian mafia apparently laundered more than $70 million in dirty money through Ontario casinos in just a few short years. That is according to allegations by the York Regional Police. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a huge issue. Because we have seen what that has done in British Columbia. We have long suspected that it is happening in this province. And now here we have evidence from York Regional Police that that very thing is happening. And I'll tell you what, if you're worried about the price of real estate, if you're worried about the price of of rent in this city, this has a direct impact on you. Brian Hill is a Global News digital researcher and writer, and I'm pleased to have him back on the program. Hi, Brian. Hi there. Give us a sense of what we know about how this money was laundered in Ontario.
4: Sure. So according to York Regional Police, the illegal proceeds from crime, which, interestingly enough, include illegal proceeds gained through operating illegal Casinos or illegal gambling houses are funneled through casinos in Ontario. And basically, what that means is you take the dirty money that you earn illegally. And you gamble it at a casino. So you walk in, uh, with cash, bundles of cash, uh, and we saw that, like you say, in British Columbia. You, you walk into a casino with a bundle of cash, you make a buy-in, you play, you lose a little bit, and then you cash out, and it's all good. You get new bills, clean money, and you can then take that money and invest it and, or deposit it or funnel it into legitimate businesses like real estate and other things. Brian,
1: we've seen in British Columbia that there was evidence that criminals were wandering in with bags full of cash. How is it possible that casino operators and police in this province didn't twig on that this was happening here?
4: Mm-hmm. So we spoke with, or we got an, uh, a statement, rather, from the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation, and they say they comply with all federal financial reporting requirements, FinTrack uh, requirements. Uh, but you're right. The, the the officers, according to York Police, were observing uh, members of this crime cartel gambling upwards of thirty dollars to $50,000 a night. Uh, you know, and these, these proceeds of crime, which they're alleging are, are then, like say, cashed out in chips or in cash and then taken out of the casinos. So the, the folks that are at the casinos that see this, uh, uh, they, they obviously are aware as well, uh, so are the law enforcement people, but the, the casinos themselves say that they are required, uh, re- you know, complying with all of the regulations and, and and obviously won't comment on any specifics related to the investigation.
1: Hey, Frank, uh, oh, I see that you got that duffel bag full of cash again back every Tuesday. Good to see you. Here are your chips. Oh, well, see you next Tuesday, Frank. Like, yeah. you know, and like, oh, there's nothing going on
4: here. It's yeah, ridiculous. That's essentially, that's essentially how it works. And and, and interestingly, like, the, the as the York police say, the... The seventy million dollar figure. I think about seventy million dollars in just a few short years was 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 laundered through these casinos, according to the allegations made by police. And that's uh, according to reports that these uh, that the police received from the casinos. So you know, Frank, this hypothetical Frank, or whoever it might be, or more, or more realistically, some of those individuals who were charged yesterday, the casinos keep close tabs on you, so they know how much you bet, every bet you make, how long you spend at the table, how much money you're winning, how much money you're losing, how many things the casino may be comping you. Uh, casinos keep very, very, very close tabs and have excellent surveillance of everybody that's in there. Um, and so the reports that, uh, that the police say they've received from casinos uh, indicate or suggest that up to $70 million was, was laundered through these casinos by this uh, crime cartel.
1: Brian Hill is with Global News, and you can read his story on this very subject on globalnews.ca. Always great to have you on, Brian. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks very much. Big story out of New Brunswick. I want to take you to uh, Ross Lord now, who has this report on the fact that Dennis Oland has been found not guilty of second-degree murder in the 2011 death of his wealthy father in St. John, New Brunswick. Here's Global News Ross Lord with more from the courthouse.
5: Your brother, the Court of Queens bench Justice Terrence Morrison decided in issuing his not guilty verdict that the puzzle pieces of this case simply didn't all fit together. So Dennis Olin was not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The only material evidence the Crown had was Olin's brown jacket, the jacket that was tested positive for a DNA match with his father's blood. But the defense had refuted that and other testimony and other evidence. After the not guilty verdict, there was an audible gasp. There was sobbing from the side of the courtroom where Dennis Olin's family was seated as he proceeded to hug them and then hug a steady procession of other supporters. Ross Lord, Global News. St. John, New Brunswick.
1: Here's a little bit of the background on the case. The body of Richard Olin, 69 years old, the prominent Moosehead Brewery's family head, was discovered face down in a pool of blood in his uptown St. John Investment Firm office of the morning of of July 7, 2011. He had suffered 45 sharp and blunt force injuries to his head, neck, and hands, Dennis Olin visited his father in the office the night before and is the last known person to have seen him alive. But no weapon was ever found. Olin's family, not making any comments about the decision, but at a news conference that was held just a short while ago, Olin's lawyer, Alan Gold, said it was an important day to, quote, "...acknowledge the fact that Dennis did not kill his father." But Mr. Gold went on to say that this is not a day to celebrate.
0: I don't really think today's a day to celebrate so much as what I'm hoping is you recognize it's a day to acknowledge the fact that Dennis did not kill his father.
1: Here also is Mr. Olin's lawyer, Alan Gold, saying that it is time for the police to do their jobs.
0: Find the real killers and then we can have a real celebration. And I sincerely hope that the St. John Police Force will do the right thing, admit they were wrong, admit they were wrong to focus on Dennis the very day the body was discovered, and do their job and go out and properly investigate this terrible, terrible crime.
1: Once again, Dennis Olin, not guilty of murder in a retrial over the 2011 death of his multi-millionaire father. This Sunday, July 21st, marks the first anniversary since the shooting on the Danforth that shook this city. The shooting killed two a young woman of 18 and a 10 year old girl. Twelve others were injured. Samantha Price was one of those 12, but close friends was close friends, pardon me, with the 18 year old victim. The parents of Samantha joined Global's Karen Lieberman to talk about their fight for more gun control as we mark this somber anniversary.
5: It, it, it's funny because I actually, I'll wake up every morning now, and uh, I'm on Twitter, as some people know, and I actually wake up with the thought in my head of what shooting will there be this morning. And no word of a lie, the past couple of weeks, few weeks, um, there's been a shooting almost every day, sometimes twice a day. And, uh, and I keep wanting to wake up and not see that in the news but that's not the case and just go forward knowing that okay we've got to do something about this i can't sit back and watch anymore i just want to be part of um i want to be part of some kind of solution i want to be able to speak up and and advocate for for change i think we need to do something
1: and so you have,
0: and you're part with some, many of the other families of, of victims and survivors, and so um, let's talk a little bit about what you're looking for, and then also whether you feel Ottawa is hearing, hearing your plea.
5: You know, we're, we're not trying to say that all gun ownership is the wrong thing. I think there's lots of legitimate uses, and those are, are fair. Um, But we do feel like handguns and assault rifles, both categories of weapons, the most easily concealed, which is the case in our case, and those that can be the most destructive, really, you know, do private citizens really need to own them? And, you know, I think the majority of Canadians would probably support that position, but don't really think about it until they're affected. And I think that 's what really happened to Claire and i is once you become affected i you know a year ago we wouldn 't be having this conversation we 're having it because we 're definitely affected, and then you have sure. to decide are you going to speak out or not and we chose to speak out mm-hmm. so what would i say I would say you know mm-hmm. Bill Blair um, the uh, you know the Minister Blair has you know gone across the country he did they I think they did the right thing in consulting. I think we feel he's still putting a little bit too much weight on a few voices that are very loud that are in favor of the status quo. We feel that they have announced they're going to take some measure against uh, automatic weapons or assault rifles in some way that's to be determined. I think you know they're deferring handguns to local decision-making. That's not as far as Claire and I would like to see, um, and it's only directional so far. And we can't help but notice that in New Zealand... They made a decision, they took action, and they've implemented it inside the window of when the Danforth happened and when action has been announced by our Canadian government. So if you ask us our opinion, we would say, well, I think they're trying to get it right. I feel like that's been, you know... It's just gone more slowly than other jurisdictions have shown us as possible if you really wanted to make it happen. So we would yeah. hope that, you know, we're coming to the end of the Parliament, the current Parliament. This now becomes an election issue, which is, is we were hoping it wouldn't have to come to that. Um, get, there are lots of things to consider when voting this fall, but I guess this will be one of them now, and we certainly would have liked it if the government had moved faster.
1: It is an interview with Karen Lieberman of Global News, and you can see more of her reporting beginning tonight and throughout the weekend as we mark this somber anniversary in the city. Always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Especially, Always do the right thing. Thank you, Mayor. Especially when it's hot outside. Talking about the anniversary of Spike Lee's incendiary 1989 movie, Do the Right Thing. It's being celebrated in Toronto tonight. Spike Lee will be in attendance himself for a bit of a question and answer. And I want to read to you a little bit about what happened to remind you about what happened when this movie first came out in 1989. Critics hated it so much that they actually said there were worries that there would be riots because of the incendiary nature of the film. And I continue to use that because if you've seen the movie, you know, fire plays a big part in it. Its 1989 debut rocked Hollywood like an atomic blast. Lee's razor-sharp social critique cuts through the antiquated notions of the American dream with lethal dexterity. I'm reading from ThatSheaf.com about the movie itself. The movie tells us that America is less of a melting pot than a smoldering volcano, and instead of lava, it spews generations of blood. You know, the movie is like Radio Rahim's boombox. And Lee's haters were like Sal and Pino in their hands, covering their ears, getting rocked by this dev- devastating base. On the hottest day of the summer, Brooklyn pizza delivery guy Mookie, played by Spike Lee, makes his rounds while navigating the racially charged tensions that inform every daily interaction in the neighborhood. That is the setting of the movie. And this was its soundtrack. And you might ask yourself, Alan, why are you going on about this movie? Well, it was my sweet spot. It was one of those movies that changed my idea about what movies could be. And this song changed my idea about what music could be. And in fact, I'll tell you this. There's a sort of thing, there are moments in your life that just etch themselves in. The first car I ever owned was a 1982 Honda Prelude. Now, it, wasn't, it was a couple years old when I got it, but it was an 82 Prelude, baby, and it was sweet. And I knew when I got into it for the first time that the music that I played I, would be important. I was impor- I would, This was key to me. And what did I do? I slapped in a cassette. Uh, Chuck D, Flavor Flav, Blaren. Rolling down the Burlington Boulevard of my 82 prelude, looking like a doofus. (laughs) Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, celebrating the 30th anniversary. Well, I also want to talk about movies because yesterday the internet just went crazy because of Cats. And (laughs) normally the internet loves Cats, but when it's Cats the Musical... It's something completely different. Let's play a little bit of the audio from this, shall we? All right, that is enough of that. Oh, my. You have got to see this. Christian Janselowicz, he is with GlobalNews.ca Hi. and joins me on, live in studio. Thank you. I want to read you this. Forbes film critic Scott Mendelssohn said of the trailer for the live action musical was, quote, appropriately terrifying and insane, like a drug-induced nightmare. I can't wait. <laughs> film critic Christy Puchko said, quote, my brain has melted. My eyes are bleeding. There is no God. <laughs>
6: I would say those are pretty succinct descriptions about what happened yesterday. Try if you can to
1: describe for our audience what is actually on screen when we are hearing that cacophony.
6: You know, uh, I'm a little shocked at that audio. I, I just, I don't know if I'd heard it that loud before, so it was uh, quite a shock. You got to play, it. you got to play memories at that level. Yeah, it just hit like it again. You know, it's The only way you can do it. This actually, it comes to this way. It's, it, we're
1: contractually obligated to play it only at this level.
6: that wow, right. that is loud. Anyway, so uh, what, what we saw yesterday and what the internet completely reacted to in a way that I don't know if I've seen uh, in the last decade is complete cacophony online. Uh, you know, they saw a bunch of really great high-rated actors in cat costumes. Cat suits. Cat suits. Uh, some had boobs. Uh, it was very confusing. Uh, there's creepy. a lot of dancing and, and rolling, oh, and, and it just was a bizarre People thought it was a joke. I no, it seriously. When I first saw it, I thought the Onion have outdone themselves. Yeah, and like I'd heard, I'd caught, and I'd heard some rumors that uh, this was coming out Friday, but they they popped it out on Thursday, and this thing just, I, I, Twitter was just overtaken. It was a cat's social media.
1: That's it, all it was. And the thing is, it's gonna do gangbusters because people are gonna go see it just to hate
6: it. Yeah, oh yeah, the, the, hate, hate, the hate watching will be a, a real thing.
1: A and let me thing. just tell you this is a bit of a background as I've been, you know, you know, casting back, looking back. I actually saw Cats on Broadway, the original production, as a teenager.
6: Yeah, I saw it as a kid, so I...
1: Yeah, I well, that's in the... there, yeah, but that was in the 90s. Uh, I saw it in the 80s, and I fell asleep. I fell asleep in the middle of it. it. It was... I couldn't... I was like, what in the world is going on? There's just a bunch of you know people running around in cat suits and then all of a sudden a ship you know f- folds out of the back and that's it that's the whole thing
6: so it's supposed to be um i was actually told by a colleague upstairs it's supposed to be like a series of vignettes about uh a- disconnected vignettes about cats in an alley or cat cat life cat world it has a plot i think that's the plot is that it's no plot it's that it's a <laughs> collection of experiences of cats in a world that we'll never visit that's what someone told
1: me cats why does it always have to be cats I want to pivot to the other trailer that came out that was received much more positively, and that is the trailer for the new Top Gun movie. And I just have a little bit of just cringe-worthy audio from from oh, yeah. from it here. Let's play that.
2: The end is inevitable, man. Don't call me like this. Kind of headed for extinction.
3: Maybe so, sir. But not today.
6: Just ladle in a little more of that cheese. That was the cruziest quote oh ever. Oh, my God.
1: Just the worst. Here's the thing. If you've seen it, the, the the actual jet fighter sequences look really cool. does look cool. It looks cool. But I, can we just have that movie? Just an IMAX
6: of that. And then if Cruise doesn't talk, I think we have a movie on our hands. Yeah. I Again, we've had this discussion, I believe, about sequels and prequels and reboots and everything, I just honestly think we've hit this limit. I, I feel like we're back, gone back in time, sort of back to the future in right. a weird way. Uh, everything I've seen, I've seen before.
1: Uh, give me some cats. Give me some more cats. Give me some memories.
6: <gasps> See, but this is my thing. Like nobody's got an original idea. No, everyone's afraid to do it. Ah, oh, I can't concentrate. <laughs> isn't that off? Just kill it.
5: No one wants that.